Is that amazing or what? God has made us his own. And you know what? It took an act of God for that to happen. Because we weren't seeking that out. We weren't looking for that. We weren't desiring that. It was the work of the the Holy Spirit in our lives that brought us to a place where we understood our need of salvation and that God then changed our lives in such a way that we could become part of his family. We've been studying that to a very uh, large degree in our study in 1 Peter. We're going to continue that study this morning. Uh, we We started this study by looking at the idea of election. Not necessarily a popular topic, even, in, even among Christianity, a lot, of, a lot of religions don't like the idea that God chose among from, some from among condemned sinners to be the recipients of his grace. Some get it confused and think, well, God chose some to go to heaven and chose some to go to hell. No, he didn't choose any to go to hell. He wants all to come to him and know Christ as their savior, but some chose not to. And if God didn't choose some to come from among all of condemned mankind, then none would come. None would come. And so we're so thankful that God did choose us to be part of his family. As we continue our study in 1 Peter this morning, we're making our way down to verse 13. We're going slowly through this first chapter as we set the foundation for uh, some of these great truths. But um, let me ask you a question this morning. Every parent, everywhere has heard the question from their child, why? As a parent, have you, have you not, if you've never heard that question, raise your hand. Oh, there's no hands? Why? And oftentimes, tell me this one as well, have you ever just given the answer, because I said so? Yeah. And you know what? Kids, children, that should be good enough. I remember the story of a missionary with his kid, with his child, uh, in the jungles of the Amazon. And his, his dad was in one spot and the child was in another spot, uh, close enough, but, you know, um, not, not right side by side. Um, and as the child was walking towards his dad, he was walking underneath a tree and there was a deadly snake hanging from the tree. And the dad yells to his son, Drop to the ground and crawl to me. And you know what? That child did exactly what he was told to do. He, he, didn't, he, didn't, just, he didn't stand there and say, but dad, why do you want me to just dumb? Why do you want me to do that? He immediately dropped to the ground, crawled to his dad, and his dad picked him up in his arms and he pointed to the tree where the snake was and the son knew exactly why his dad asked him to do that. Why? It's a question that we ask a lot. And even, you know, we hope that they, get, they outgrow that when they're, being, when they're like not two or three years old anymore. We hope that they get beyond that why stage. But we never do, really. We may not ask it as frequently. Um, but when we were in South Africa and they were building our, the addition onto our house, the, the builder uh, came and I've explained to you how they do things in South Africa a little differently. They put this stuff down on the cement foundation. It's called brick grip. It's just a little piece of thin piece of plastic. Um, and he starts building on that, some, on that piece of plastic, starts piling bricks, one on top of the other, and the wall's all the way up. And I said to Moses, I said, Moses, can you explain to me why this is working, why this works? How, how is it that that wall's not going to fall over? It's not even attached to anything. He said, Pastor, it works. 
I said, okay, but can you tell me why it works? I mean, we would build, we would put cement down first, and then we would put the brick in the cement, and then we would layers of cement in between. They don't start with that. They start with that piece of plastic, and then the brick on the plastic, and then a layer of cement. How does that work, Moses? What would make that wall not fall down if I drove my car up to it and pushed it over with my car? He had a strange look on his face, and he says, Pastor, I do it this way. My father did it this way. My grandfather did it this way. I said, I get that, but can you explain to me how it works? I I mean, I was 40-some years old. Moses, why does it work? We ask that question all the time. Ron has probably been asked questions like that because they help build churches all over the place. But Ron, I know, here's a question I asked Ron. Ron, why are all the outlets upside down? Pastor, because that's code. That's the way you're supposed to do it. Okay. Uh, when, when, they, when they give you that answer, you don't ask anymore because they might not even know the reason themselves. Um, but anyway, Why? Well, here this morning, as we look at our text in 1 Peter, the title of the message is, Just Because. Peter knew that people would ask, why? Why did God choose? Why did God give us such an amazing salvation? That's all outlined for us in verses 1 through 12. But Peter, why should I be so grateful for my salvation? And Peter says, because. I'm glad here that Peter doesn't just stop with because or because I said so. He goes on to tell us, and and a lot of it is because God said so. And you know what? When God says so, that should be enough for us. We should say, okay, thank you, God. No further questions. In verses 10 through 13, we looked at this passage of scripture last week. Peter reminded his readers and he reminded us how great our salvation is. The greatness of our salvation is seen not in just what it provides for those that God has called to be part of his family. It's not seen just in the fact that he has given to us a home in heaven for all of eternity, but it is also seen in the fact that the prophets of old studied out our salvation. They didn't understand it. They studied it as much as they could. They tried to get a handle on it, but they didn't get it all. They couldn't figure it out because it wasn't time for people to understand it at that point. But God gave it to the prophets to write down so we would know that when it happened, it was all of God because it was promised so many years before. Not anything to do with you and I. We couldn't dream up such an amazing plan. More than that, The angels don't even understand it. Don't you love that last phrase of verse 12? Things that the angels long to look into. They've looked into it for centuries and can't figure it out. How is this possible? Why would God do this? Why would God send his only son, Jesus, who, as far as we have known, has inhabited heaven? Why would he send him to earth to die on a cross for mankind. Why would he give him a human body so that he could die in the place of humans? Didn't make any sense, still doesn't make very much sense to the angels. But you know what? When the angels know that an individual comes to know Jesus as their Savior, what does the Bible tell us the angels do? They rejoice. Hallelujah. Praise God. To God be the glory. Yeah. They celebrate in heaven. So, When we think of all of this amazing salvation, 
Peter then moves into verse 13 and he says, therefore, you love that word, I love that word, Therefore, because God has given us such a great salvation, because God has chosen us to be part of his family, because God, fill in the blank, therefore, Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. Would you stand with me as we read this together, verses 13 through 16? First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, as we stand together, we will read and honor God by our standing. Verse 13 Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct." Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and wow, what a, what a statement, what a command that is from Peter to his, right, to his readers. Be holy like God is holy. As we read through that passage, we quickly say to you and to ourselves, that's not possible, I can't be holy. But Father, as we realize all of the things that lead up to that command, we understand that it's not because of what we can do that we can be holy, but it's all because of what Christ has done for us and through us and in us, that we can indeed follow this command and be obedient to the command that Peter writes to be holy. Help us to understand that as we look at this passage of Scripture together today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Now, it's important for us to see these verses that Peter um, is issuing to the believers, a call to action. He wants a response from his readers. Peter's original readers would probably have identified with this rendering of uh, words far different than we would identify with it. This morning, uh, we, we have a certain picture that might come to our mind as a result of this passage of Scripture. But you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to go way out on a limb and say, I don't think we have, hit, sitting here this morning, an idea of what Peter meant when he said to his readers, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, he's saying, prepare your mind. Provide yourself with the right attitude. Plant your hope. Prevent worldly confirmation. And plan to be holy. That's a summary of what we're going to look at this morning. But as Peter says, prepare your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Um, When you think of this word gird, what do you think of? Anybody want to tell me what comes to mind when you think of the word gird? Girder? Okay. Any other ideas, Paul? A brace. Okay. Here's a, here's a definition from an English dictionary. The word gird, there's four, to encircle or bind with a belt or a band, hence the idea of a girdle, which probably not very common anymore, but in the olden days, it was very common. I'm sure the ladies are happy that they're not common anymore. To surround, to enclose, or to hem in is the second definition in the dictionary. The third one is to prepare oneself for action. 
That's about as close as we're going to get to the biblical understanding of the word gird. The fourth is to provide, equip, or invest as with power or strength. The third definition, to prepare for action or to battle, is actually the idea that Peter is going for here when he says, gird up the loins of your minds. But the mental picture was probably different than ours might be. I'm going to show you a picture of what it meant for somebody in Peter's time to think of the idea of girding up the loins. Go ahead. It's kind of small, but as you think about it, here's a guy in his normal attire for the day, right? Okay, that's what he's dressed, that's what he looks like. And, And guys, aren't you glad you don't have to wear dresses anymore? But anyway, that's what it looks like. So when, when you're going to gird up, the, gird up the, your loins, you grab your robe, you grab your whatever garment you want to call it, you grab it and you pull it up to your waist, okay? It says here, the tunic wouldn't allow you to do heavy labor and fight and battle, necessitating the girding of the loins. Secondly, you, you hoist up the tunic of the, uh, of the fabric to above your knees, It gives you more mobility. And then you gather all the extra material in front of you so that the back of the tunic is snug against your backside. Okay? The the next thing you do, and this is part of what a warrior did when he was getting ready to go into battle, okay? Once the excess fabric is gathered in front, you pull it underneath between your legs to the backside. This feels much like a diaper. Yeah, you got it. And then you gather half the material in each hand, you bring it back to the front, and you tie it up. Maybe you had a belt that you tucked it in, or maybe you just tied a knot. And finally, you tie your two handles of material together, and you're all set for both battle and some hard labor. Go forth, be men! But you're wearing a dress. Anyway, be men, gird up your loins. That's what was going through the minds of Peter's readers when Peter says, gird up your minds. There's a literal Old Testament account of one that girded up his loins. Let me read it for you. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 18. I'll start with verse 44 and read through verse 46. Uh, Just listen as I read. It says, then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, there is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, go up to Ahab and say, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Uh, There had been a prediction of no rain for three years. And we're at the end of that three-year period. And there's not been any rain. And we've just had the confrontation on Carmel where the prophets of Baal were defeated. And God answered by fire. And he swallowed up the sacrifice, licked up all the water. God has been exalted. God has been glorified. And the prophet is pouting. But anyway, um, he now is called to action. Elijah has to gird up his loins. Look at verse 45. Listen, now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. In his chariot, Ahab is riding away from uh, Carmel to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins, and he ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Ahab's in his chariot, and can I just add this idea that it's the king's chariot, it's probably the fastest one that's available in Israel, okay? If we're talking cars today, he's probably in a Ferrari or something like that, okay? Something that's going to get where he needs to go and get there in a quick uh, amount of time. 
Elijah girds up his loins, he gathers it like a garment, or he gathers his garment like a diaper, and he starts running. He outran Ahab's chariot, and he got to Jezreel, and he was standing there waiting for Ahab when Ahab pulled in. That's quite a feat. That's amazing. But it couldn't have happened unless he girded up his loins and the hand of the Lord came upon him. There's another Old Testament passage that I think explains the idea of what Peter is calling you and I to and the rest of his readers. Um, It's found in Jeremiah chapter 1 when God calls Jeremiah to be his prophet. Now, this is the calling of Jeremiah, okay? And you can decide if you would want to be in Jeremiah's spot or not. God says to Jeremiah, Therefore, prepare yourself and arise, okay? In other words, gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare yourselves, prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, and against the people of the land. They will fight against you. But they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. That word prepare in verse 17, yep, it's in the King James, it's the phrase, gird up your loins. Jeremiah was told, you're going to preach a message, people aren't going to listen to you, people are going to not like what you have to say, people are going to be against you, but you gird up your loins and be ready because I will be with you. I will be with you. Hmm. There's another image that I think Peter wants us to understand and walk away from with this passage this morning. Go ahead, Timothy, go to the next slide. This is the idea of girding up your loins. Your brain must be filled up with the word of God. You must, put your, you must allow the word of God to influence your thought process, to control your thought process, and to help you make choices that will honor our great God. This is what he means by saying, prepare your minds, gird up the loins of your mind. So we might ask this question, how do we actually go about preparing our minds? What should I, as a child of God, do to make this real in my life? Well, Paul gives us some good advice in Colossians chapter 3. He says this, if then you are raised with Christ, or for those of us who know Jesus as our Savior, Paul is really saying, since then you were raised with Christ Do this, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We could sum up this this advice in three words. Two of them are right in the text. The first word is seek, seek, okay? What does Paul say? Seek those things that are above. In other words, we are to have a heavenly mindset. We are to prepare our minds, to gird up the loins of our minds. We must seek the things that God seeks. That's how we prepare our minds. We seek the things that God seeks. Now, can I ask you a question? Where do we find the things that God seeks? In the Bible. We find them in the pages of Scripture. So if we're going to know what God wants us to do, what do we have to be doing? We have to be students of the book. We have to be in the book. If we're not in the book, we won't know what God wants. We won't know what God thinks. We won't be able to seek the things that God seeks. Peter or Paul also says, set your minds on things above. 
The second word there is set. Set your minds. My focus must be on what God has called me to do. How do I know what God has called me to do? It's in the pages of Scripture. Say, Pastor, there's not, there's not a word, there's not a verse in the Bible that says, Tim Mowers, go and do this. Tim Mowers, you should be the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Provo, New York. There's not a verse in the Bible that says that. No, there's not. But there are lots of verses that tell me if I'm doing this, then I'm doing the will of God. Rejoice evermore. Pray without, cease, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in everything. I'm a firm believer in the fact that if I am doing those things, we might call that the generic will of God, where, where it says in the word of God, this is the will of God for you. If I'm doing those things, my heart is going to be right and ready to understand what it is that God wants me to do in every other aspect of life. I'm not sure that's true. I challenge you to do it. And then you come back and tell me if it's true. Because I think you will come to the conclusion that I've come to. It is true. When we do those things that God says, this is the will of God for you, then we will be doing in our lives, individually, personally, the things that God wants us to do. We'll be honoring him, we'll be glorifying him, and we'll be carrying out his will for our lives. So we seek and we set and then we see that we submit. Paul put it this way in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. It is no longer I who lives, but it is Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If I want to do what God wants me to do, I must submit to what he says in his word. I must be obedient to the word. I must read the word. I must put it into application into my life. So we seek, set, and we submit. That's how we prepare our minds for the things that God would have us to do. Not only do we prepare our minds according to verse 13, but we also see here in verse 13 that we provide ourselves with the right attitude. We provide ourselves with the right attitude. Peter urges followers of Jesus to be sober. Again, we have a word here that doesn't really mean today what it meant in Peter's day. Today, the first meaning of the word sober is likely to be one that is not drunk. Okay, one who has not become intoxicated, one who has not allowed their mind and body to be controlled by an external substance, whether it's drink or drugs or whatever. That's somebody who is sober when they're not controlled by outside chemical influences. There's something to be said for not consuming too much alcohol. That's a good thing. The scriptures teach us that. I'm one that believes, in fact, that there's no need for the child of God to participate in something that is going to make you drunk. Because if you don't start with just a little bit, you're not going to get to the point where you've got too much. Okay? So I just personally stay away from it. Don't even bother with it and encourage others to do the same. But that's not really what Peter's talking about here. Peter here calls the believers to be self-controlled. The word sober here means to be free from every form of mental and spiritual excess. You know, sometimes when people get so consumed with what's going on in their life and they start to think about this and what might happen if this happens or what might happen if that happens or what if I do this and that happens, we begin to worry about things that haven't even happened yet. And Peter's saying we need to be free from the mental excesses of life. 
We need to be free from the spiritual excesses of life. In other words, we need to read Scripture. We need to believe Scripture. We need to do Scripture and let the rest, let God handle the rest. Okay? That's what God is calling us to do. Um, The Bible Knowledge Commentary suggests this. Rather than being controlled by outside circumstances, believers should be directed from within. And what's within? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? Okay, so the thing that is within, remember Jesus said to the disciples, I'm going away. I have to go away because if I go away, I will send the comforter. Comforter. If I don't go away, I can't send the comforter. When he went to heaven, he sent the comforter and the comforter indwells us, fills us, controls us if we allow him to. So that which is within is the Holy Spirit. So when I let the Holy Spirit control me, guess what? I'm doing what God wants me to do. I'm providing myself with the right attitude. Paul puts it this way in Philippians. We just finished a study in the book of Philippians, but in chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, you know these verses. We looked at them quite in depth. Paul said this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. How do I have the right mindset? How do I have the right attitude? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a bondservant, and became in the likeness of men. Why? We celebrated it this morning. So he could bear my sins and your sins and the sins of mankind in that body that he took upon himself. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So what, do we, what is the mindset that Jesus had here in Philippians chapter 2? Well, first of all, let me tell you this. He wasn't concerned about his rights. Okay? That's, a, that's an issue that we have to deal with today in our lives, isn't it? I've got rights! Do you? Do you Really? Eh, if we really follow the scriptures, yes, we, because we're Americans, we have certain rights. But as Christians, we should be willing to surrender those rights if God asks us to do that. Jesus wasn't concerned about his rights. You see, he had every right to be thought of as God. Because in every point, he is God. But for the sake of mankind, for the sake of his creation, for your sake and my sake, he gave up his rights. And he went to the cross. And he hung on the cross. So he wasn't concerned about his rights. He wasn't concerned about his reputation. Oh, I can't do that. Think People might think I'm strange or weird or stupid. No way, you're not going to catch me doing that. Don't get me wrong here. We're not thinking about somebody's testimony. We're thinking about what other people think about you when you do what is right. Jesus, Son of God, every bit God, gave that up, that expectation, the the right that he had to be worshipped and looked at as God. He gave that up. Jesus was not concerned about what others thought about him or that they thought less of him because he fulfilled God's plan for his life. How does that look for you and I today? 
You go into the workplace and people are talking vulgar, dirty, cursing and swearing. And you choose not to use that kind of language. You're weird. You don't talk like we, lo- we talk. How come you don't talk that way? Well, at one point in Peter's life, he adopted that other kind of language. He cursed and he swore so people would think he was one of them. When, when the girl said, you don't talk like the rest of us, and, and, and Peter started cursing and swearing, does that make it better? No, because we saw you with him. We know that you're a follower. It just ruined his testimony. You see, when, when we refuse to act like the world acts and we act like God would have us to act, people might think less of us. Come on, we're having a, we're having a great party. It's all lined up. The drinks are free and, and everything else you want to have there, you can do it all. Nah, I'm going to pass because that wouldn't make my Savior happy. You're who? You're what? Well, you see, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of God, and and God doesn't want me to do those kinds of things. You're nuts. You're weird. It might cause our reputation to take a hit. But we don't have to protect that kind of reputation because that's not really our reputation anymore, is it? We are children of God. We are part of the family of God. You see, Jesus wasn't concerned that people would think less of him because he did what God wanted him to do. And then we see also part of that mindset, he was willing to relinquish his life. He gave up everything to be obedient to the call of God in his life. When we were serving in South Africa, um, sometimes South Africans would say to us, you guys must be crazy to leave America and come to South Africa to, to pastor a church, to start a church, to build a church. That's weird. Why would you do that? Why would you give up everything in America to come here? That's what God called us to do. It wasn't really a difficult decision because we wanted to be obedient to God's call in our life. And God calls each of us to be willing to do what he asks us to do. Give up everything if we have to. You see, Jesus had complete humility that led to his death. And not just to any death, but Paul goes on to say, death that was reserved for the worst kinds of criminals. Death on a cross. It wasn't like Jesus just died. He went to a cross, a criminal's cross. Good people didn't die on a cross. Only the bad, only the worst of the criminals, only the insurrectionists died on a cross. And so that's what Jesus died. A criminal's death on a cross. Can you imagine what that did to his reputation? (laughs) But he didn't mind because he loved us and it was God's plan for him to do that for us. So we must have the mindset. We must provide ourselves with the right attitude to have the same kind of attitude that Jesus had. And then Peter says, we also must do this. We must plant our hope firmly in the grace of Jesus Christ. He said it this way, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You must plant your, your hope firmly on the grace of God. Now, Barb and I have done some planting this summer. We've planted some different things, and if you drive by, you'll see that we made a, a, a new bed 
uh, it centered around the flagpole there in front of the parsonage. We tilled up a piece of grass and, and broke it all up, pulled out all the grass, and did all the work that was necessary so that we could do what? So that we could rest these plants in a new place where they would grow and produce and look really nice. We've got these dinner plate hibiscus. I don't, know what, I don't know if you know what they are, but the flowers get to be about this big on them. Bold and beautiful flowers. On one end, we have a hydrangea, which is actually doing quite well. On the other end, we have a rhododendron. And, and you know, we drove around and we said, oh, we like that and we like that, and eh, not so much on that one, but eh, yeah, we kind of like that one. Um, and so we have now in this bed, we have two more things that we need to transplant, but we have this bed that, we ha- that has all the flowers that we want. We prepared it, we prepared the soil, um, we put the fertilizer in, we put all the stuff that was necessary for the particular plant that we were planting in there. We took the plant out of the pot that we bought it in and we rested it firmly in this ground that has been prepared for the plant. And you know what? It's amazing, but the plants are growing. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. You and I, we must plant our hope firmly in the grace of Jesus Christ. When we do that, you know what happens? We become established. We become firmly grounded and rooted in what God would have us to do. Excuse me. As followers of Jesus, when we are planting ourselves firmly in the hope and the grace of Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to rest in that grace and to produce what God wants us to produce. This resting is because of God's faithfulness, and God's faithfulness is always true. I'm not so sure what these plants will look like next year after our Central New York winters. Fortunately, they all have guarantees. If you buy plants from like Little York Plantation or even Lowe's, they come 10-year guarantee or something like that. You plant it in the ground. If it doesn't live, you go back and say, hey, I planted this. Here it is. It's dead. And they'll give you a new one. Jesus' guarantee is better. If you live for me, you will have impact not just for this world, but for eternity. Oh, man. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? There's never been a time when God has not been faithful. Our hope rests firmly in the faithfulness of God. Listen to the words of John MacArthur as he talks about this hope that we have. He says, Believers owe their hope exclusively to God's graciousness and faithfulness. He provided the perfect salvation in Christ, which resulted in the forgiveness of all their sins, past, present, and future, and their transformation from the kingdom of darkness into the eternal kingdom of light. God has been faithful in the past. He's being faithful in the present, and he will be faithful to his promises for the future. Wow. We serve a great God. Do we not? He's amazing. Our hope is the result of God's great grace. When we plant our hope in our great God and his grace and his faithfulness, we understand that we're planting our hope in his grace and the the hope that we have is exactly the result of what God's grace looks like. We don't really have to spend much time here because we've talked about this quite a bit in the past. We are fully aware of the great grace that has brought us our amazing salvations 
We, we, we shared testimonies last week. We went around the church and people had the opportunity to share their testimonies of how God saved them. You know what that proves? God's grace is still great today. It's still working today, just as much as it has ever been working. Most importantly, God's word confirms his amazing grace. Let me just share a few of them with you. I think they're on the screen. Romans chapter 3, verse 24 says, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What is the key word in that? Justified. I've been declared righteous by the grace of God. Hallelujah! Titus 3.7 says that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Again, we see that we're justified and we understand again from the pen of the Apostle Paul that we have eternal life. Why? Because of the grace of God. And we are an heir to Jesus Christ. Man, does it get any better? Ephesians 2.5 says, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. This grace just keeps getting better and better. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What do we know about this grace? Well, that this grace is rich. Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that through you his poverty might become rich. Now, how, how can that be that I get the riches of Christ because of the, God, the grace of God? 1 Peter 5.10, we'll get to this eventually in our study of 1 Peter, but it says there, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, may he perfect you, may he establish you, may he strengthen you, and may he settle you. Oh, That's another hallelujah phrase, isn't it? Thank you, Jesus. Wow. Ought to get us excited. Ought to give us goosebumps. You see, it's because of this great grace that Peter commands us to fix our hope fully on Jesus Christ. In the structure of the Greek, this is not just just a suggestion from Peter, but it's literally a command. In fact, it's a military command. Fix your hope on the grace of God. One commentator explains it this way. The Greek word for fix or rest is an aorist active imperative. Don't worry about any of that stuff. By which Peter exhorts believers in military fashion to a decisive kind of action. Gird up your loins. Get ready for battle. He encourages us to a hope that is an obligatory act of the will. Not merely an emotional feeling. They are commanded to live expectantly, anticipating with a living hope their inheritance reserved in heaven, revealed at the last time. Can I tell you this? As a child of God, with the promises that God has made to us, the hope that is ours, the fact of eternal life, I'm not sure that we have any reason as Christians to be depressed and downhearted and frustrated because things aren't going quite the way we want them to in this life. Because we don't have to focus on this life. We know what is coming. We know that this life is just temporary and that in the last day, he says that, the very next thing, that our hope will be realized at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our hope will be realized at the revelation of Jesus. We've talked about this biblical word for hope many times. It's not a wish. (laughs) 
I, I think I've watched one playoff game since the Yankees got eliminated. My hope was that the Yankees would play in the World Series, but it was really just a wish. And you know what? It didn't happen. I know friends who are wishing that the Tampa Bay Rays win it all. I have friends that are wishing that the, the Red Sox will win it all. Or that the Giants come from all different backgrounds and they like different teams. So they're wishing, they're hoping that their team will be crowned the world champions of baseball. Nobody has anything to base that on. It's just a wish. It's just a hope. But you know what? For Christians, our hope is a fact. Our hope is based on something true, authentic, genuine, and nobody can take it away. The hope that we have as believers is a certainty that will come to pass. Even though we understand this to be a truth applied to our lives because of the work of Calvary, we know that it's happened. Scripture often refers to it as a future reality. Again, I remind you of something that we learned recently in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul said, Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will do what? will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. So yes, Jesus, God sees me as a, as a completed work because he looks at me through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. My, I see myself often as a failure. I didn't do that right. I could have done that better. I need to understand that God is going to complete his work at the moment I see Jesus, no matter what I've done. No matter how good I've been or how bad I've been, the work of Jesus Christ will be complete in my life the moment I set my eyes on Jesus Christ. First John chapter 3, verse 2, we'll be like him because what? We'll see him as he is. Mm. I recently heard a preacher explain the believer's hope this way. He says, it is, in essence, this hope equivalent to faith. It's trusting God. The major difference between the two attitudes is that faith involves trusting God in the present, whereas hope is future faith, trusting God for what is to come. Faith appropriates what God has already said and done in his, and revealed in his word, and hope anticipates what he will yet do as promised in Scripture. So what's the basis for our faith? What's the basis for our hope? The word of God. You see, it's not based on what I think, what I hope, what somebody else tells me. It's based on the word of God. That's why we take such a high view of the word of God here. Everything that we do should revolve around the truths of the word of God. Well, let's see what else Peter says about this amazing hope. Just because. Why am I supposed to be thankful for all that God has done. And how do I do that? How do I adopt this mindset? Well, he says we need to prevent worldly confirmation. Prevent worldly confirmation. In other words, I should not let my mind, my body, myself, my heart, anything about me be conformed to this world. And if I am, I need to stop. This grace and this hope makes it possible for the followers of Jesus to become like Jesus. Oh my goodness. We can become like Jesus? Yes, we can. That is the goodness and the grace of our God. This process means that we should be obedient and not conform to the ways of the world. 
Again, Peter says it this way, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. In other words, Peter says, this is another phrase that parents use all the time, you should know better than that. Have you said that, mom and dad? You should know better than to do something like that. Peter says, you're no longer ignorant because of the work of God in your life. You now know what God expects of you. The Apostle, Paul, or the Apostle John explains it this way in 1 John chapter 5. He says in verse 1, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him, who begot also, whom he begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not obedient. So what's the expectation of the elect? The expectation of the child of God is obedience. When God saves us and calls us into his family, he expects us to obey his word. He expects us to obey his commands. It's reasonable for us to do that. In fact, he even says, and by the way, my commands are not burdensome. Why are they not burdensome? Because the Holy Spirit lives within us and enables us to do them, to carry them out. What's the expression of obedience? We see the expectation. What's the expression? How is it borne out in our lives? Well, as we continue to work our way through this passage and much of what Peter has written here, um, we understand that he wants us to be conformed to the image of God and not conformed to the world. He doesn't want us to look like the world. Others should know that we are children of God by the way we do life. Our life, our manner of living should set us apart from the rest of the world. Why don't we conform to the world? Well, Paul says it this way in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Y'all, y'all, you know that verse, right? Anybody want to quote it? I won't put you on the spot. I appeal to you, and I'm reading it from a different translation, so it'll make you think a little bit more about what it says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, or we could say, be transformed by the girding up of the loins of your mind, that by testing, and that word testing there means by putting God and his word to the test. <gasps> Are we really supposed to do that? Yes. And what is Paul saying here? We read the scriptures. We see what the scripture says. God says this is true in his scriptures. So I can say to God, God, you said this in your word. So help me to live that way. Help me to believe you. Help me to live in faith. Help me to do it. Because that's what your word says. That's what it means when it says, by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do I make my will right before God? I conform, conform my will to God's will. It's exactly what Jesus said. Remember when he said, I have not come to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. If Jesus was willing to conform his will, how much more should I be willing to conform my will to what God wants for me? 
And then this leads Peter to the last challenge, and we'll close with this. He says, you need to plan to be holy. You need to plan to be holy. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Again, there's really nothing new here in this text that Peter is saying to us. The call to holiness for the followers of Jesus is seen over and over and over again in Scripture. In fact, it starts in the Old Testament, in the Jewish scriptures where God says to the Israelites in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. In Leviticus 20, we read, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Jumping to the New Testament, we read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you, what? Holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, we read, God has saved us and called us to what? To a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Wow. Holy. God wants us to be holy. It hasn't changed from the very beginning. Be holy. What did God say to Adam and Eve? He put them in the garden and he said, be holy. Set yourself apart to the things I've commanded you. Don't touch the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't a test. It was a command. You do it and you will live. Be holy. Be obedient. We have been called and we have been equipped to be holy. But you know what? We must still choose to be holy in our walk with God. We must choose to let God have his way in our lives. He won't force us. He will do some things to encourage us to be obedient. But in the end, it's our decision. And as those who have been so blessed by the work of God in our lives, as Peter has been teaching us in the first 13 verses of this passage of Scripture, he is saying to us, be holy, because God has equipped you to be holy. Peter has called his readers in the text this morning to live by the word of God. This This morning, as readers of this word that has been preserved by God down through the ages, we have been called to the same holiness and we have been equipped by the same God so that we can, if we want to, choose to be holy as he is holy. It's pretty amazing stuff, isn't it? Would you bow your heads with me this morning? We're going to ask God to help us to want to be holy.